week, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a great evangelical preacher of London in the 20th century, and uh, he was overwhelmed by chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8 of Romans. He preached 144 sermons just on those four chapters because they are the core of the gospel message. If you can just lay hold of those four chapters, you'll be blessed with a Christian message. And so he preached 144, we are going to preach three. Um, so if you want to learn more, go to Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he's on the internet. Um, but we'll try and do justice here in the third sermon in our series. And remember, okay, so we're in chapter 7 and 8 this week. And you remember chapter 6 of last week, Paul throws out a rhetorical question posed by his critics in order to give a framework to his theology. Chapter 6, you remember that? He said, shall we sin that grace may abound? And remember Paul's answer to his critics? May gnoito. Heck no, you shall not sin that grace may abound. That's a, that's a petty question. It's a silly question. You shouldn't ask that. Well, Paul is doing the same thing today. And if you have your Bibles, turn to chapter 7 and you'll see that. He gives framework for his theological discussion by a rhetorical question of his critics. Verse 1, he says today, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Once again, meganoito. Heck no. The law is not sin. And then he begins to unpack why. And so I want you to listen at three reasons. Listen to three reasons why we can't just ditch the law and we have to have it and that it's good. All right, so verse 7. We'll see that the law instructs us in righteousness. First point. All right, Paul says this about himself. Yet, if it, yet, if it had been, not been for the law, I would not have known my sin. For I would not have known what it is like to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. It was instructing him in sin. The law was causing him to reflect on covetousness in his own personal life. But he goes on to say, now here's the question. Uh, Paul's an older man now. Tenth commandment is thou shalt not covet. He's finally getting the fact that he shouldn't covet. Doesn't that raise a question? In verse 9 he says, I was once alive apart from the law, but when that commandment came in, sin came alive and I died. Sin came alive and I died. Uh, is it like he just opened up the Bible to Exodus 20 and said, oh, there's a tenth commandment. I didn't know you shall not covet. Suddenly it's very clear. No. What's happening there? He says it killed me. It means that the power of the Holy Spirit was working through the law to reveal to Paul a spiritual shortcoming. And number two, that law was going from head, because he was a law teacher, right? He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He learned one, under one of the great teachers of the ancient world called Gamaliel. So he knew the law back and forth, but it was in his mind. Here, it drops down into his heart. And the power of the Holy Spirit convicts him of his sin. And he says, it killed me. It slew me. It killed me. What did it kill? It killed any personal righteousness that Paul may have. It killed his understanding of where he was with God. And it caused him to want to repent and return. It slew me. So the first work of the law is to instruct us in righteousness. How would we know what righteousness looks like apart from the law? The second thing we got to realize is that, that God in the law 
gives it to us to protect us from ourselves. To protect us from ourselves. You know, think about just the Ten Commandments for a minute. I mean, they're, they're wonderful. God said, you shall have no other gods except me. What's he saying? I love you. I'm like a marriage partner. I don't want to share you with any other gods or goddesses. I don't want to share you with anything that draws your heart more strongly than, than my love draws your heart to me. That's spiritual darkness. That leads to eternal damnation. He, I want to protect you from that, God is saying. You shall not murder. God says, I'm the author of life from conception to death. I give life and I take life. And, and life is precious because it is my gift. I've breathed life into you. Therefore, I don't want you to harm one another. I want you to treat with each other with dignity and respect because the life in you is, is God-breathed. I want to protect you, God's saying. God's saying, honor your father and your mother. What's he doing there? He's protecting the family unit because he knows that society works best when, when there are fathers that love mothers and, and parents that love their children. He says no sex outside of marriage. Uh, why is that? Does he want to spoil our fun? Does he, does he want to just say, guys, if you're my sons and daughters, you're not going to have any fun. It's just going to be a boring ride. No. He wants sex to be within a marriage covenant. And when it's in the marriage covenant, it becomes a divine gift that unifies husband and wife together. Outside of that is destructive. Whether it's sex before marriage or sex outside of marriage, here's the deal. I had a bishop explain it like this. He said, sex is a powerful gift and it's like a fire in your life. He said, if you put it in the fireplace where it's meant to be, it is something that blesses the entire family. It gives light and warmth on a cold winter day and joy and, and it brings the unifying effect to the family. But take sex or the fire outside and burn a hole in the kitchen floor and the whole building goes up in flames. You destroy the household. Why? Because God has an intended place for it. That's what the law describes for us. In its intended place, it is precious. God wants to protect us from burning down our spiritual houses. So to instruct us, to protect us, and finally, to grow us in grace. Remember last week we said that we're not saved in order to get a ticket to heaven. That's not the reason. We are saved in order to have union with Jesus Christ and he wants us to grow in his family likeness all through our lives into eternity so that we are glorified with Jesus before the Father in heaven. So that's the sanctification process, the growing in grace. And throughout the Bible, God keeps saying, be holy as I'm holy. Y'all be holy as I'm holy. And what he's saying is, I want you to grow in the family likeness. Leviticus chapter 11, Leviticus 19, Leviticus 20 1 Peter 1.16, be holy as I'm holy. So the law instructs us in true godliness. So look at verse 12. That's why Paul says the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Even Jesus himself said, I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. But here's the deal. There's a growing libertarian, a spiritual libertarianism in the church that says that those are laws of the Old Testament. We don't need to abide by them anymore. It's kind of what Paul's critics were saying, right? The law is sin. Let's just ditch it. Let's throw it out. But here's why you, you can't do it. Um, and those same people will say, 
well, we don't abide by many of the laws. Can't we just throw out the ones we don't like? For example, they'll say, well, Trip Jeffords, you know, there's a law against eating pork. And I've seen your Facebook pictures. And I know you love to barbecue outside. You're a sinner. If you're not going to abide by that law, why, don't, why can't I ditch these? Or I've seen the Jeffords at the St. Paul's uh, yearly oyster roast. And boy, they can throw down on some oysters. The Old Testament says you can't eat shellfish. Y'all are breaking that law. Why can't I break this law? Here's why that doesn't hold water. Every Christian needs to hear this because this is your sure defense. There are three types of laws in the Old Testament. One is civil law. And that has to do with how the nation state of Israel is run. How you care for the poor within the nation state of Israel. How you care for other nations and how you treat other nations. Those are civil laws. But we don't live in Israel anymore. And we are actually citizens of heaven, Paul says in Galatians 3.20. So citizenship and civil law don't apply to us. How about ceremonial laws like the barbecue or the shellfish? Well, here's the deal on that. Remember Acts chapter 10? Peter has this vision of these unclean animals coming down out of heaven like they were on a sheet. And, he's, and God tells Peter, rise and take up these animals and eat them. And God, Peter says, I'm a kosher guy. I've never eaten anything unclean. I'm not about to start right now. And God says, Peter, get up. Eat these animals. You don't call something unclean if I've pronounced it clean. So that's why the ceremonial laws are no longer in place. You don't have to be circumcised to be saved. You can enjoy your barbecued pork, and you can delight in shellfish. Ceremonials are gone. But the one binding law that is in effect for all time is the moral law. The moral law. And the moral law is a reflection of God's goodness and love to his creation. And we are to conform to the image and likeness of his son. Slowly but surely, we become sanctified in his grace. And we work towards that perfect life that we'll enjoy in heaven. That's why Paul says in verse 12, So the law is holy. The commandments are holy and righteous and good because they're leading us to a sanctified life, one that looks like the Son of God. But here's the problem. There's still a part of us that struggles with God's moral law, every one of us, and it's called the flesh. Paul says epithumia is the Greek word, lust of the flesh, desiring something more than God in our lives. We all have that. So what we've got here in our spiritual lives today is Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And if you know that, that, uh, that old tale, it was a novella. It was written in 1886 by a Presbyterian Christian named Robert Louis Stevenson. Now, a lot of scholars will, will tell you that that inner battle of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde was birthed out of his reading of Romans 7. It was birthed out of Romans 7, a lot of people will say. So remember the story. You've got Dr. Jekyll, who is a good persona. People in his community like him. He's generous. He's kind. He's gracious towards other people. That's his perfect outward self, Dr. Jekyll. But there's this thing inside called Mr. Hyde. And Mr. Hyde is selfish and self-serving and prideful and arrogant. And he's capable of all sorts of atrocities. So there's this inner struggle. Do you ever feel like you have an inner struggle like that? That there are two personas living in you. That which wants to do good, to be sanctified, to glow, grow in holiness, and 
that which keeps dragging you down, prideful, arrogant, capable of all sorts of atrocities. In the book it says, every day I drew steadily toward the truth that the man is not truly one, but he's truly two. I saw a primitive duality in me. I saw two natures contending in the field of my consciousness. If I could rightly be said to be either, it was only because I was radically both. Both Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Do you ever feel that way? I know I do. And I think Paul's describing that spiritual struggle today. Look at verse 16. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law, that it is good. Remember, it's convicted me. It's shown me that I'm not doing the right thing. Verse 17. So now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. That's the part of the fleshly self that's not redeemed yet. Verse 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what's right. I want to be holy, but not the ability to carry it out. I've got this Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde happening. Verse 19. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. Now if I do not do what I want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. See what he's saying? He said the problem is not the law. The law is good and righteous and a reflection of God's true nature. The problem's not the law, it's the sin, the flesh within me that causes the law to convict me. So I want to do good, but evil lies close at hand. I've got this delight in my mind, but in my inner being, in my members, my flesh, there's a war being waged. In the book, the novella, uh, the answer is you take a potion. And the idea is that Dr. Jekyll would take this potion and it would suddenly separate those two natures so that he could live freely as the good nature and wouldn't have to be bound to the bad. But the problem was when he took the potion, that because the good nature of Dr. Jekyll was separated and unfettered, Mr. Hyde ran rampant and unrestrained. He is now unleashed with a hideous strength for evil, absolutely corrupt in his life. And so the potion didn't work. So what do we do as Christians? If we can't separate those natures, what do we do? Well, here's the answer. Look at what Paul finds out. Um, How utterly lost he is, but because he's utterly lost, it drives him to the only place where a weary soul can find rest, and that's in Jesus. Verse 24 and 25. He says, cries out in this moment of desperation, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God. It is through Christ Jesus, the Lord. He was so desperate. He was so tired of the fight. He's so tired of the war being waged in his his members, in his soul, the goodness of God in him through the Spirit, and yet the old corrupt flesh. And he said, man, i got to give it up. i got to give the battle to Jesus. He's got to be my victory. i got to press in towards Jesus. i got to let him give the victory. It's at that moment of desperation that God floods in. Uh, There's an old line from the old prayer book, and we'll get it in the new prayer book. And it's a confessional line that says, Oh Lord, there is no health in us. There's no health in us. I don't have the power to go on. I can't heal myself. I'm utterly undone. It's the moment of desperation. And it's in that moment of desperation that we are propelled into the arms of the only one who can give us victory. And that is Jesus Christ. Those of you who have been through AA in your life, or those who have had a 12-step program for any drug, alcohol, or other problem, you know the very first step, don't you? The first step is this, and I quote, 
We have to admit that we are powerless over alcohol and that our lives have become unmanageable. Unmanageable. I, I can't fight it anymore. I, I can't war this, uh, wage this war any longer. But we got a weapon in the war, and his name is Christ Jesus. In uh, Luther's ancient hymn, The Mighty Fortress is Our God, he says this, Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. Were not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing? Do you ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, his name, from age to age the same. And he must win the battle. He's got to do it. You've got to be so desperate that you lay it on the line and let him fight the fight. And the last thing that I'll leave you with is this. Chapter 7 is a walk in darkness. It's the wrestling of a man who is totally desperate, who's losing a battle against sin. Chapter 8 is the story of a man through the power of the Spirit who's been released and has power through the Holy Spirit to overcome any obstacle and to fight any war. In fact, the Holy Spirit is not mentioned in chapter 7. So scholars say that must have been Paul's life, his struggle, his war, before he knew the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's in chapter 8 that there's such joy and freedom and power in the Spirit that he starts to mention the Spirit in 17 verses 15 times. Paul says in verse 4 that those who are walking according to the flesh are walking according to the old Adam, but we are to be walking according to the Spirit, he says. Verse 5, for those who live according to the flesh, they set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Verse 6, for to set your mind on the old flesh is death, set your mind on the new flesh, or new spirit is life and peace. You see the difference between chapter 7 and chapter 8? The law convicted Paul that he couldn't win the war. So he went from a war he cannot win in his flesh to a war he cannot lose in the spirit. That's the key, friends. A war we cannot win in the flesh to a war we cannot lose in the spirit. I've got one life verse to leave you with. This is a life verse that should be on every coffee cup. Ezekiel 36, 26. When the Holy Spirit comes, this is what God promises. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit, and I'll put it in you. I'll remove from you your old heart of stone, and I'll give to you a new heart of flesh. That old heart of stone struggling against the laws of God, wanting to cast it out. The heart of flesh wanting to, to yield to God in everything to let Christ be our victory, to, to long to grow into holiness, to want to be patterned into the life of his son. You see, there's new life in the Spirit. Let the old man die. Give the war over to Jesus. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory. In Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.